Good morning, Colorado Church. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. You know, there's a group of people here that are visiting from Illinois, and I heard them just say that louder than anyone else. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, welcome, guys, so much to church today. We're excited to have you in the house. My name is John Bowsman, and we are going to be going through a conversation today about what it looks like to live in community and to love where you live. If you've missed the last couple of weeks and you want to catch up, you can always check out past sermons by going to Colorado Life Church website, or you can download our podcast. That's what I like to do. I'm a big podcast junkie. I listen to everything from sermons to short stories to EDM music. So I highly recommend that medium. Today, our conversation is going to be focused around living in community, and it's called, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Now, some giggles started to happen because I'm sure that immediately in your mind, you thought the same person that I thought of when I wrote that, which is who? Mr. Rogers. Absolutely. I almost wore a cardigan for that very reason today. (laughs) I had the music teed up, but I figured I was like, you know what? This vest is probably more Coloradoan, and I probably should stick with that, and I'm not going to take off my shoes, so that's (laughs) that's not going to happen. But our conversation today is entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor?, And we're going to focus on a passage in a book called Luke. If you were here last week, you heard a little bit more about the author, Luke. It's also what the book is named after. And it takes place in a part of the Bible called the Gospels, which focuses on the life of Jesus Christ. It's found in the back portion, so if you're not familiar how to find it, just kind of go to the back and start kind of thumbing through there. It's a story written by this physician named Luke, and he personally didn't know Jesus, but he was so enamored by who Jesus was, that he dedicated his life to interviewing people who knew Jesus and who saw what he did. Our conversation is going to be around this parable. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, you may have heard this before. This may be a story that you're familiar with, and I hope that in our time today that you see it in a little bit different light. Maybe You've heard that phrase, the Good Samaritan. It's something that we talk about in our culture, kind of like a David versus Goliath when we're talking about sports teams. But you may not have known that that actually comes from the Bible, and that's totally fine. Or maybe today you're visiting and you're not familiar with it at all. And in which case, I am especially excited that you're here because this is one of my favorite stories. And I get the opportunity and the great pleasure and honor of sharing this story with you today. Now, as we dive into this, one of the unique parts about this story that I want to look at is, what is a parable? You may have heard that before. A parable, just so you know, is simply put, it is a story, a short story, used to illustrate and make a point, or to communicate an idea or concept that otherwise might be harder to do, right? So Jesus does this a lot when he's trying to talk about a few different things, and so in scripture, you may see him say things like this. The kingdom of God is like a man who planted a mustard seed in his garden. Or you may hear or read him say something like this. The kingdom of God is like, and he would say something else, or God is like a good shepherd who would leave his flock of 99 to find the one lost sheep. We still talk like this today. This is not some ancient thing that doesn't exist anymore. We still talk like this today. And we see in the beautiful, illustrious words of the wonderful, great Alanis Morissette, (laughs) when she says, it's like rain, 
on your wedding day. It's a free ride that you've already paid. It's good advice that you just didn't take. Thank you, ladies from Illinois. <laughs> Appreciate that. I, my mom has told me before, she's like, John, I don't believe that God makes mistakes, but not giving you a singing voice would probably be one of them. <laughs> I'm like, thanks, mom. I was like, I got a voice of an angel. Problem is it's a fallen one, but it's an angel nonetheless. <laughs> so thank you for covering my out of tune words. As we look into our time today, we're going to break up this passage. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And we're going to break it up into three parts. The first is going to be the setup. Next is going to be the summary, or sorry, the setup, the story, and then the summary. The setup, the story, and the summary. We're going to break it up in three parts. We're going to read it all the way through, and then we're going to come back and do it piece by piece. If you don't have your Bibles here today, I'm going to be reading it. We're also going to have it up on the screen. And if you don't have a Bible, we would be stoked to use Colorado language. We'd be stoked to give you one. So if you don't have one on your way out at the welcome booth right there by the front door, we have Bibles. That is our gift to you. So please feel free to take one today. If you'll turn to me to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He, being the teacher or the teacher of the law, said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father God, we just pray that right now as we enter this time and this space, that you would be present with us, Lord, and we know that you are. And we just ask that you would speak so clearly right now, that it would be your words and no one else, and you would speak to the people and the preacher alike. 
And we ask this in the wonderful and beautiful and power name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The first part that we're going to be talking about is the setup. And it's quite clear, the Bible says what's going on the moment we enter this story. It says in verse 25 that on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Expert in the law. That's a term that I want to dive into a little bit more. You see, an expert in the law in that time would have been somewhat equivalent to maybe a lawyer today, someone that knew the law very, very well. Because at that time, the Jewish law, well, that was pretty much the law. And the reality is, is that this guy not only knew it, he knew it well. He knew it really well. So coming in and asking Jesus this question, he knows exactly what he's trying to do. He knows the answers before they even come his way. But yet, he's going for it. And this is something that if you read the Gospels, if you read the story of Jesus' life, happens several times. Where these teachers of the law would approach him and they would do it, not out of the desire to learn or to understand better, but to try and trap him to put him in a position that would not be good. And why did they do it? You see, Jesus spent time with a lot of people that those religious people didn't like. We talked about a guy last week named Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. (laughs) And if you're not familiar with the story, he climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. And the story goes that Zacchaeus is one of those guys. He is one of those guys that you did not want to hang around with. If you were to put a totem pole of, man, I could hang out with these people, but once we started to get that gray area, maybe not. Like Zacchaeus wasn't even like close to gray area. He was well past that. But yet these are the people that Jesus spends time with. He's the kind of guy that loves the unlovable. And at that time, religious leaders, that didn't jam with them. That didn't jam with him at all. So he's trying to set him up. Verses 26 through 28. Jesus responds, What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? Remember, they're experts here. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus answers him, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. In typical Jesus fashion, he answers a question with a question. In this culture at this time, this is one way that you demonstrated that you understood the material at hand, and we still do that today. Responding in a question with a question is one way that you can illustrate, I get it, I know what we're talking about, I'm on the same level. Let me give you an example. If you were to ask me, John, what is the greatest Star Wars movie ever made? I'm going to look at you and be like, well, are we talking about the canon of Star Wars, like episode one through eight? I mean, are we talking like true purists, four through six? Are we including the new ones? Are we including Rogue One, which made me cry in the second time I saw it? Because that may be in, that may be in. Are we considering those? 
Not only in asking you the question did I just demonstrate that I'm a complete, absolute nerd, <laughs> but that I also understand the material at hand. Another question that could be asked would be like, John, if you could be any superhero, who would you be? The first question out of my mouth, guaranteed every time. Are we including Batman in this? <laughs> because technically, Batman is not a superhero. I don't want to shatter anyone's dreams. He doesn't have superhero powers. I'm seeing a guy wearing Captain America shirt nodding his head in the back. He's in agreement. He's an expert. <laughs> Bruce Wayne is a billionaire with a lot of resources, some cool toys, some pretty sweet human abilities, and the willingness to take a beating. <laughs> that's what Batman is. But that's also a trick question because I'm under the firm belief that whenever you can be Batman, you be Batman. <laughs> There's no doubt. Anytime. I will pick Batman and Bruce Wayne all day long. But by asking that question, I demonstrate that I understand what we're talking about. So Jesus responds to this lawyer, this expert in the law, with this question, asking him in return, what does the law say? How do you read it? Let's be real. The lawyer already knows what it says. He already knows what it says, and so does Jesus which is why this is going to get really interesting really fast. The lawyer responds simply, love God, love your neighbor. To summarize it simply, love God, love people, there you go. And Jesus is like, yep, you got it. That's it. Nice job, buddy. Done. If it were me, I would be like starting to turn moving on to the next person. I'm like, cool, we're both good. Got it. Moving on, buddy. But that's not what happens. The lawyer wants to go further. He isn't satisfied yet. Verse 29, the lawyer responds, but he wanted to justify himself. Remember, it's a setup. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? You can almost hear the prodding and antagonizing in that question. Who is my neighbor? Because you see, Jesus, I'm an expert in the law. Like, I know what it says. And I think you and I are on a different page here because I see the people that you hang out with. I see the people that you associate yourself with. I don't think we're on the same page here. So who is my neighbor? What's interesting here is the expert in the law, he already knew what it said. But Jesus is about to tell him what it means. The expert in the law, he already knew what it said. But Jesus is about to tell him what it means. We come to the second part. We come to what I'm referring to as the story. And this is where Jesus gets ready to drop his own mic. Because if I'm that guy, if I'm the expert in the law, I, I, if he had a mic, he may have dropped it. I don't know, right? But he is in a position right now where he thinks that he has got Jesus cornered because he's got a setup. And Jesus responds with a story. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hand of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. For context, this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho is a little less than about 16 miles. If you're me, I kind of need visuals. So 
If you were to go from downtown Evergreen, Colorado, start at Muddy Buck Cafe, grab your coffee, it's going to be a journey, folks. If you were to go from there and start walking towards Denver, you would get about halfway there. It's about half the distance from Evergreen to Denver, Colorado. And it was a dangerous road. This was not a joy ride. It was rocky. It was dangerous. There were lots of places for people to hide, lots of places for people to jump out and to rob you and to beat you. It was not a safe place. What's interesting is the person that is beaten and left in Jesus' story is anonymous. Did you catch that? When we read the other three characters that he introduces, there's a lot more information and context around those three. We know them by position or title of some kind, but yet the victim in the story is left anonymous. All we know is it's a man. And I believe that's on purpose. And I believe it's on purpose for two things. The first is, is that it frees us up from presumption and bias if they're anonymous. If that were a wealthy person, you could justify, like, well, sure, they helped him because maybe there was something in it for them. If it was someone of power and position, maybe they would have helped him because there was something for them. But it's not. It's left completely anonymous. And the second reason why I believe that it's left anonymous is because of this. The point, the point of this parable is not actually about the victim's needs. Rather, it's about the three people, their hearts, and their deeds. It is not necessarily about the victim in need, but it is about the three other people, their hearts, and their deeds. Let's explore that a little bit further. Verse 31 through 32. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Enter into the story two characters, a Jewish priest and a Levite. A Levite at that time was a religious leader that today in modern times might be associated more with like a worship pastor uh, or a worship leader. That was their role in leading worship. So two people in the religious circuit enter the story. It almost kind of sounds like a joke, right? I mean, that's kind of how it starts, right? It's not like, you know, why did the chicken cross the road? It's like, well, why did the priest and the Levite cross the road? to avoid helping that guy. <laughs> but that's kind of how it starts, right? And I believe once again that Jesus chose these two people in his story on purpose. I think if you ask most people, regardless of whatever they believe in this world, you could probably come to some common ground that helping someone in need is probably a good thing. You could probably come to that conclusion. But if we're honest, we all kind of have this higher expectation for certain people based upon their role or who they are that like they should help more. In this situation, you might be like, well, yeah, surely somebody should help that guy. That guy's in need. But especially a priest, that guy especially should have helped him. Or yeah, that worship pastor, he should have helped him. Absolutely. Anyone should have helped him, but especially those guys. Am I alone on that assumption? No. So I believe he chose them on purpose for several reasons. Now, this road that we talked about, when Jesus says that they went to the other side, 
this is not a four-lane highway at all. This is not a metropolis interstate. Some parts of this road are only a few feet wide, with a cliff on one side and rock wall on the other. For Jesus to say that these two people, this priest and this Levite, this worship pastor, were to go to the other side, is both him being comical, because there's not a whole lot of room to go. So he's saying that, yeah, it's, it's kind of humorous here, but he's making a point. And it's that the intentionality that these two went in going out of their way, not to go out of their way and care for this person. He's making a point, the intentionality that these two people made in going out of their way to not go out of their way to care for this person. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Then along comes an unlikely character in the story, a Samaritan. Remember, Jesus is talking to a group of Jewish people. That's his audience at this time. And the context of that is that Jewish people and Samaritans did not get along. In fact, for the Jewish community, Samaritans were a group of people that the idea that they would do anything good, anything kind, anything selfless would be unfathomable. There was hatred there. There was despise there. In our culture, it's a little hard to communicate an accurate comparison. When thinking about it, you could say, well, maybe a staunch liberal comes across a beaten and staunch conservative. That doesn't do it justice. Perhaps you could say a Palestinian comes across a beaten Israeli. Perhaps you could end up saying an illegal immigrant comes across a beaten, elitist, silver spoon college graduate. Or maybe, just maybe, to take it to a one more extreme, you could say a Denver Broncos football fan <laughs> comes across a New England Patriots fan. <laughs> and then we're testing the limits, people. Then we're testing the limits at that point. But that, that's what we're looking at here. Jesus is talking to him, and he brings up a character that they didn't like. And what does he do? What does this hated character do? Verse 34 through 35. He, being the Samaritan, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. What does that hated character do? He takes care of the stranger. He takes care of that man. He binds up his wounds, he puts him on his own donkey, he takes him to an inn, and he puts down the money out of his own pocket. For context, those two silver coins would have been about two days' wage. And that would have covered up to about two months of this stranger staying at the inn. And I keep saying stranger because I think it's important for us to note in this moment, he doesn't know this person. 
There is no context in anywhere in here that he is familiar with this individual. And yet, he goes out of his way to take care of him. And on top of that, he not only takes care of his needs in the present moment, but quite literally in the months to come. And says, hey, if, if I go over, if this money doesn't cover it, if this guy needs three months, I got that. When I get back, I'll take care of that. I'll take care of that. So let's not pass by the fact that he doesn't know this guy. Verses 36 through 37. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's interesting. Let's, let's sit in this for a second. Remember that the original question, the whole point of the story, was in the context of loving your neighbor, was who is my neighbor? If Jesus wanted to make the point that helping someone, just someone, was the whole point of, like, helping someone, that's loving your neighbor. Just helping someone. Then I think that the third character that he introduced in the story would have been an expert in the law, just like this lawyer. I think the point would have been, like, you got it, man. The third person in this story who goes out and helps them, that's you. You should go out and help people. That's the point. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that. In fact, Jesus picks the most unlikely character possible to enter this story. He picks not just someone, he picks someone that everybody in that crowd would have despised, that they would have hated, that they would never have thought that someone like that would have done something like this. You know what's interesting is when Jesus asked him the question, which one? do you think? Which one of these three do you think between the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer responds by saying, the one who had mercy on him. He doesn't say the Samaritan. He doesn't actually call him by name. It's interesting because for those of us in our lives, we do this sometimes where, man, I don't even want to say it. Maybe you've dated somebody, right? Maybe you've dated somebody and it didn't work out, and there's a lot of pain there. What do you, you don't refer to him by name. You refer to him as, well, the ex. Or maybe you loved and lost, and it's the one that got away. Maybe there's someone in our lives as a family member, or maybe it's a coworker that you just don't like. And you don't like him to the point that you can't even say their name. It's to that level. That's what's happening in this story. Jesus says, between these three, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, which one was the neighbor? And this expert in law, he can't even say his name. They're so despised. He can't even say his name. And that's the point. That's the point why I think Jesus picked that guy. Because it's saying, listen, the whole point of loving your neighbor is not just to love anyone. That means loving the people that you think are unlovable. That means loving the people that, quite frankly, you don't like. That means loving the people that you may despise. So in an interesting turn of events, Jesus puts that out there, where he takes 
that person that everyone in this crowd probably would have despised. And he makes him the hero. He makes him the hero of the story. That brings us to our third and final section, talking about the summary. Because everyone is considered our neighbor, friend or foe. Everyone is considered our neighbor. And let's be honest, living in community, that's hard, that's messy. There are good things to living in community. Living in community sometimes means birthday parties. Man, I like me some birthday parties. There is cake. And I am one of those people who are like, man, you give me cake, but I'm also kind of old school, so I want coffee, so I'm kind of like a mixture. But I want cake, and my brother's that guy that wants the corner piece with all the, you know, flowers on it, because his is half icing. But that's what you do. You celebrate wonderful things. In my house, we celebrate all kinds of random things. Growing up, man, first day of summer, party! You come home with a bunch of gifts that my mom got at the dollar store, but it was awesome, it was great, it was wonderful. You celebrate that. You celebrate getting new jobs. You celebrate a new child coming into the world. It's the privilege of doing life with people is that you get to be a part of that. But it's also hard. If you're actually doing life with people, it's hard. It's messy. Because what's interesting about this is that there is nothing convenient about what happened in that story for the Samaritan. Think about it. He's walking along. He comes across a person in need. He stops his trip, he takes care of him, he gives up his ride, he takes him to an inn, he dumps out cash, and he's like, hey, when I come back, if you need more, I'll give it to you. That's not convenient. That's like super inconvenient. In fact, that is just straight up messy. Throw in the fact that the guy is naked, that just makes it even more messy. (laughs) That part always stood out to me. I'm like, I probably would have put something on top of him before I put him on the donkey, but we don't know if he did or not. It's messy. It is messy. One of my favorite authors, he's a Colorado native, John Eldridge, has this to say about what living in community looks like. He says, living in community is like camping together. That sounds good at first, right? Yeah, like, we all love camping. I went camping this weekend. It's great. Living in community is like camping together for a month (laughs) in the desert without tents. (laughs) Like it started out so great. We're going camping, guys. Camping trip. Guess what? We're going to be together for a long time, and it's going to be in the desert, and we got no shelter. Who's in? Who's ready to do this with me? It's messy. One thing he also says, though, is that living in community in such an intimate way with people is that I should be able to remind you of your story even when you forget it. When you lose your way, when you go astray, I should know you so intimately that I can remind you not only who you are, but whose you are. That you are a child of God. Living in community is a great and wonderful thing, but it can also be messy. I have a caveat to this. I didn't want to put this at the beginning because I did not want anyone in this room to be tempted to check out because sometimes we can avoid the mess, right? Sometimes you can be like, man, I don't have time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. Like that. <laughs> but I don't want us to shut off. I want us to see that, one, living in community and loving people is messy. And loving people means both friend and foe, people we like and people we don't. 
But I want to provide this caveat. What I am not saying, I am not saying that there aren't good and healthy boundaries either. There are some times where your good intentions and your good actions, depending on how they are received and treated by the recipient, can also turn unhealthy. They can become enabling. Now, that's not the case in the story that we looked at today, but that may be the case in your story today. Because sometimes Massey is helping someone alongside the road, beaten and bruised. And sometimes Massey looks like after a long season of helping someone, and that help has turned into something that is no longer healthy, but counter to it, sometimes Massey is drawing that line. And sometimes knowing when to do either can be really, really challenging. I don't have a silver bullet to tell you that, man, if you can check these things off, you know which one to do. But I believe I can give you some good advice on where to start. If your heart towards that person or that group of people that you're considering that with, if your heart is to say, man, I am tired of you, you're a screw-up, you're this, you're that, I'm drawing the line, it's over, boom, right there. I would challenge to say, I'm not sure that where your heart is coming from is a heart of love for that person. And so I would first say, maybe check your heart. But if your heart is love towards that person, if you want the best for that person, now it comes down to discernment time. What do I do? I'm a big believer in prayer. I don't know where you're at today in your walk and your understanding of Jesus or your faith in him, but I would definitely encourage prayer at that point. As someone who has in the last year had to walk that line with some people in my life, and it is hard. It is not easy. It is not easy to know the answer all the time. But if your heart is love for that person, first and foremost, that is a good place to start. Living in community can be this great and wonderful thing, but it can also be hard, and it can also be messy. To bring it back to the great Alanis Morissette, and I'm sorry you guys don't know the lyrics I wrote for this, otherwise you couldn't help me, ladies, but I believe that if Alanis Morissette were to write a song, and I won't sing it this time, but if she were to write a song about what it looks like to live in community, the good and the messy, it would sound something like this. It's like the surprise party for a 40th birthday commemoration. It's like the birth of a newborn with absolute celebration. It's like a 5 a.m. wake-up call when someone has overdosed. It's like a midnight run to the hospital when they have gone comatose. If you take all faith, Jesus, religion aside, whatever you want to say, at the very core of this story is a message that to love and show compassion for others, even those that we don't even like, is a good thing. And if you're someone like me who believes in God, I would say that it is not only a good thing, but it is a godly thing. It's not just a good thing. It's a godly thing. 
in closing, I'd be a little remiss if when talking about this idea of won't you be my neighbor, if I didn't mention this guy. Mr. Rogers. Many of you who are my age maybe grew up with Mr. Rogers, or if your parents in the room, you maybe had your kids grow up with him. If you're really, really young, you have yet to meet Mr. Rogers, but hopefully the DVD series will be out one day and you can. <laughs> For context, Mr. Rogers had his own TV show on PBS. It was called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And the whole purpose was to tell young people that they were valuable, that they were special, and that their life was meaningful, that they meant something. What you may not have known about Mr. Rogers is that he was an ordained minister. In 2003, Mr. Rogers passed away. After his death, there were stories that came out about his influence in people's lives, and it started to flood the internet. And I remember one such story that I read, and it stood out to me. It was a story of an entertainer. And he said through about 20 tweets, I'm not sure there was a better medium than that, but he said through tweets, this whole story. But he told this story that he was in an elevator. And at one point he looked over and he realized that he was sharing this elevator with an aged Mr. Fred Rogers. And he took this opportunity to tell Mr. Rogers how much his show meant to him. He said, Mr. Rogers, I just want to thank you for your show and what you did. I didn't grow up with a good and loving father. And what I didn't get from him, I heard from you. And I just want to let you know how much that meant to me. And Mr. Rogers turned to him, and he smiled, and he asked him, were you one of my neighbors? Were you one of my neighbors? They both got off the elevator, and Mr. Rogers delayed going on to his appointment for 45 more minutes. And he sat, and he listened to this guy share his life story about an abusive father that didn't treat him well at all and didn't care for him. And Mr. Rogers did. And in that moment, Mr. Rogers loved his neighbor. He loved his neighbor. Living in community and having compassion for others, it's hard and it's messy, but it's so good. It's so good. This is the idea that I want us to leave with today in our time and conversation. In order to love where we live, to love our neighbor as ourselves, we must address the mess in order to love people the best. We must address the mess in order to love people the best. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for our time here today. We thank you for, God, the fact that you are a loving Father. The fact that you not only love people that we would look at and think, man, surely you could love them, but you couldn't love me, or you couldn't love that person, but you are the God that loves what we would think of as the unlovable. 
God, we thank you for your time here today, Lord, and we just want to pray over not only this community right here gathered, Lord, but also we want to pray over the community of Evergreen, the community of Idaho Springs, the community of Denver, the community of Illinois, wherever we are at today, Lord, that as we leave this place, that as we are sent out into this world, Lord, as people that love you and are meant to love the people that you love as well, that you would fill our hearts with compassion and that we would be a people that not only would love our community, but we would love our neighbors, the friend, the foe alike, the people that we see as easy to love and the people that are hard. We love you, God, and we thank you for this time that we had together today. And we ask this in your son's beautiful and powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.